I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode 39. And this is the only the second episode where we have done this in our DNA forms in the same room. Yeah, it's the only time we've actually done this in person um, other than the NAPE show that we the did. The NAPE show. Yeah. The NAPE show. So Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving week is going down. And where is my phone? Because, well, here, I'm going to grab I'm going to grab this over here so that I because we got to give thanks for all the people. We got four reviews. Okay. Um, and but talk about sponsorship real quick. Yeah, folks. So if you want to get your company, your product, your service, whatever in front of our oil and gas off, uh, audience, which is global and growing like crazy, we're now um, accepting sponsorships. Now, unfortunately, we've sold all the um Underwriting. The underwriting sponsorships for 2016, and it's not even 2016 yet. We do have two supporting sponsorships left. So if that has an interest to you, reach out to James or myself, and let's have a conversation about it. Yeah, and you can get all of the show notes. Um, there's not going to be very many notes this week, though, um, but this episode is at tribrocket.com forward slash 39, TW39, I'm sorry. And next week, next week, first show with, with the underwriting. Yep. So our first sponsor, who will remain a secret until next week, um, comes on board, and uh, we are really excited and looking forward to helping them. It's I've had a lot of great conversations with them so far, and I love a company that gets it. And those are the companies that we're trying to work with. Yeah, the I, only companies we'll work with, honestly. Yeah, we, we we won't take you know something that is not worthwhile for our audience. Yeah, and that let's clarify that as well because we've talked about this offline about shows that we liked and now hate. Yeah, I, I actually have one of my favorite sales podcasts of, of all times, um, which gave away a lot of really valuable information. They were great personalities. They went very commercial just recently, and it's gotten to the point now where it's ruined their show, and I don't watch it anymore. It's one big commercial. And, and, you, you don't know, watch I, or listen? Listen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So, so just to clarify, this show is not going to become a NASCAR jacket. Yeah, never. 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 We, you know, we, we're, we're doing this for obviously – for our audience, for ourselves. Personally, I do this to learn the industry. And we're never going to sell out in the way that you're going to be like, holy cow, really? Another advertising read, James? Are you really going to do that? Yeah, yeah. So our sponsors have to have something of value. And and, our, and so far, they are some, some tremendous value. Yeah. All right. So let's go into the review since I got my phone here. Um, we got four. and And I missed one from last week. So Number one that I'll start off with is Tiger Cam 85, Mark LaCour. I like that, Tiger Cam 85. Tiger, Tiger Cam 85, making shop talk enjoyable. Yeah, I like that. That's a good review. Yeah. Five stars, very much enjoy this oil and gas podcast. Lots of interesting facts and information worth your time to check it out. A must subscribe for anyone related to the oil field. All right, we got number 36. I like this guy's name. He is great. Uh, well, the title five stars, great insights. James in the Permian. Oh, that's cool. That's not. I didn't do that. Yeah, one. I didn't do. I'm not juicing our our reviews, Mark. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, I, I really wouldn't. Um, as a younger sales professional in the Permian, the podcast is informative and gives great insight on oil and gas marketing and sales tactics. How cool is that? We, we talk so much about news and, and he's, he's getting oil and gas sales tactics. Mark knows the, uh, this industry like the back of his hand and James is a great source of comic relief. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, um, I, my, my cluelessness is pretty entertaining. They provide interesting oil facts and keep, up, uh, keep you up to date on big events and expos. This podcast is a must if you are traveling in the West Texas oil fields or in the industry. Industry. Yeah, thanks. That's a great review. Thank you, James and the Permian. Fantastic name. Uh, great listen from Will H5. These guys know their stuff. So easy to listen to. Really good mix of insight, humor, and understanding. They explain what's going on in the industry and why it's important. Highly recommended, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, thanks, dude. That was a good one. Will H5, shout out. All right, and then lastly, uh, Romare88. Wait, is that is that is that a type? Is that... Is that a Cowboys reference? Could be. <laughs> I'll, 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 keep, I'll keep that out of here because I want, I want this guy to like me. Great podcast. Your information has been very helpful over the last few months. Keep it going, fellas. We are 
keeping it going. We're at 39 right now. And what do I talk to you about all the time too, Mark, about, about, the, about the year and the 18 months and, and the growth of our audience? You know, because I talk to you all the time about how we're on episode 39, we're on episode 25. Imagine what it's going to be like when we're on episode 125. Yeah, it's going to be crazy huge. It's going to be so much fun. And we're going to have some fun right now because it is Thanksgiving. And and honestly, I, I first of all, first and foremost, personally, before I throw this over to Mark, because uh, this will be a bit of a different show, right, Mark? Yep. So before I throw this over to Mark, I have to give thanks to you, to you. If I, I, I wish I could do this individually to each and one of you, so and I have, but I have to do it collectively. Thank you for listening to this show. This show has has completely revolutionized my business and my life, and and we're gonna dig into that today. So thank you for listening, and I hope that I hope that this is an enjoyable conversation for you to listen to. Yeah, it's um, you know, our listeners are some of the most valuable people that we have. I, I one day we're gonna have to have a party and invite all our listeners to one place, and we'll pick up the tab because we appreciate you giving us time in your ears, um, and, and we also appreciate the fact that y'all find us uh, valuable. So you know, hats off to everybody that uh, listens to our podcast. Well, that's the thing is that you just think about the thousands and millions of hours of content that's out there that anyone can consume, and our listeners choose. To listen to us and it just it blows my mind when i think about the scope of the content that's out there and the fact that that we have so many people tuning in so thank you yeah so we appreciate you definitely so mark i'm gonna get out of the way because you're gonna host this show <laughs> yeah it's um not so much sure i'm gonna host this show but since it's thanksgiving we thought we'd do something a little bit different uh we're not gonna actually go through the news and we'll catch up with that next week we're going to actually talk, uh, have a very personal, intimate discussion with James on thankfulness. Um, and so, James, if, if we need to start somewhere, so let's start. Uh, where are you from? And tell me what life was like growing up as a, as a small child. I'm from Lansing, Michigan. So I was born in uh, Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, Michigan, June 12, 1980. Life growing up for the first 10 years was awesome because right. we had a lot of money. My dad owned a trash company, and so we were Han and Sons, because my dad has four sons and one daughter. Poor girl. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we had we had you know my dad. I remember there, there's a he had a buddy who owned a. You remember those huge satellite dishes? Oh yeah, the eight foot dishes. Yeah, in your backyard. Yeah. yeah. Buddy Rex owned owned a company, right? So I grew up with 624 channels. Yeah, and back when you remember were little, the chip. Yeah, you remember the chip. Yeah, when you were little, nobody else had that. It was just broadcast no, it TV. It was us. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was funny too how that affected me because people wanted to be my friend for that reason, and that really taught me a lot about how to weed people out. Oh, you want to come over so you can watch pay per view? You know, you want to watch the WrestleMania or whatever just for the yeah. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. All right, so the first ten years were 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 great, and you had the dish, and you had your dish friends, and there was money everywhere. What happened after that? Well, so yeah, so growing up, you know, it was I guess you could say upper middle class, and and just living life like you do, being a kid, riding my bike thirty miles a day every summer, and things like that. And then we got into some money problems when interestingly enough dad sold the business yeah so you got into money problems and what did that feel like to you it sucked yeah it sucked i mean we went from dad the the thing i was about to say is his buddy rex that owned that he he had he had one you remember the the vhs video recorder i mean it looked Mm -hmm. like you know yep It had turn dials on it for the channels. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm talking about on the thing, you know, that that you would record with, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Huge video cameras, 60 pound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you'd put a full VHS in it and you'd hold it up on your, you know, you'd have to be a bodybuilder. Well, there's a a tape where my mom said, hey, Jim, go go to, instead of my dad, obviously my dad's Jim. uh, Jim, go go get us some patio, uh, you know, just go get us um, like some lawn chairs, right? He comes home. With a full, I don't even know, $10,000 patio set, you know, and everything like that. So we went from that to collectors calling on a daily basis. And then, and then, um, caller ID was invented. 
which was amazing because then we could tell, but that wasn't even helpful because you would see it would be a collector and then you'd have to sit there and listen to the collection call. And that was, that, that was um, pretty much throughout my kind of preteen and then all through high school too. Yeah, so how did that affect the way you think about money? Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know we were going that personal. Yeah, I, I um, well, the, the first thing I can say, I've had the same best friend since I was 10 years old, Mike Comer, Mike W. Comer, shout out. And fifth grade, uh, you know, when we met and everything. And he, one thing he said to me recently, he said, I always knew you were going to make a lot of money because that's all you ever talked about. Which was funny because I never even heard him say that or even knew that about right. myself, right? But th- it was very emotional for me. Money, money, and you know, working with me in our businesses, it, it, it created a very emotional, um, negative emotional feeling about money in talking about money. Yeah, and then, um, so you're a young child, you know, 12, 13 years old, hitting your teenage years, there's, uh, you know, issues at home. Um, there's things you're struggling with. And then at some point, did you ever start start to think that maybe you were a bit different than other people? In a good way or a bad way? It, it, just in any way. I knew I was different than other people from, from when I was b- grade school. Because in grade school, you had cliques, and then it got worse in middle school, and then it got really bad in high school, and I never cared about what anyone thought about me. I never did, ever. It, and it, my sister to this day is shocked. But she, she, she'll tell you, yeah, Jimmy, he did not care. He didn't care about any, any, what anyone thought about him. He, he was his own thing. He was doing his own thing. And it's interesting because comedy, and I, I really like that we had a couple people mention comedy in the reviews before we started this conversation because that became my defense mechanism. So- and you know I wanted to be Eddie Murphy when I grew up, right? Uh, <laughs> makes sense, right? Naturally, yeah, naturally. But no, I used to record Comedy Central and and all of the, I mean, all of the stuff that came out of you know uh, MTV used to have a half hour Comedy Hour, and I I wanted to be a stand up comedian when I grew up. I did stand up comedy once when I was ten years old, and and that again my defense mechanism. So do you remember in Living Color? Of course, they used to have the dozens Jeopardy, right? I would record that. And then I would, you know, watch it back, pause it, and write down the jokes, the Yo Mama jokes. And then I would memorize them because I've always been able to memorize things really, really well. And I would memorize them. And so when people would come at me in, high, in school, I became, that was like my thing. You know, there were, there were like epic showdowns in seventh grade between me and this other kid who think he could take me down or whatever. And, and, and then there was the, the time I did stand-up comedy when I was 10 years old. And there was the stereotypical big Italian drunk guy with his wife. Right. Would you? How could you imagine heckling the hell out of a ten-year-old, a no. fifth grader? No. He was going off on me, and I let him have it. For a, I let him have you know get into me for a minute, and then I just unleashed all the yo mama jokes on his wife, and I won that one. Good for you. <laughs> all right, so. Uh, High school and beyond. How do you How do you mean? So you know, let's talk about what went on in your life at high school and then after high school. Right. So, um, yeah. So, like I said, in high school. So I grew up in Lansing, and then um, you know, my dad, um, you know, had a drinking problem. Some of my some of my earlier days, you know, I was eleven, twelve years old. I remember going to visit him in the rehab center, having a guy give me a picture of a the Grim Reaper holding out a crack pipe and saying, Hey, you can have this. Thanks. <laughs> what do you say to that? You know, when you're in sixth grade, right? Right. And, and so I moved, we, my dad needed to get out of there. Right. And so we moved up North is what we call it in Michigan up North. Up North is if you look at your left hand, uh, it's anything above your knuckles. It's kind of up North. And where we moved is just above your, uh, just above your the top, your your pinky. Yeah, not to get off track here. What is it about people from Michigan and they always use their hand? It's a Michigan thing. <laughs> it it's is a Michigan coolest, thing. It's the coolest thing. It's the coolest thing. But you know what else you got? You, you got the West Virginia howdy. That's West Virginia right there. 
I'm flipping Mark off right now. <laughs> All right. So y'all moved up north because uh, um, your dad needed a change. Yep. Right. Because of his. Um... Yeah. And he got in. And, and it was interesting because he got, um, you know, he, he sobered up and um, met a priest named Father Bill McKeown, who uh, was a living saint, I'm pretty sure. And he was also a recovering alcoholic. He'd been sober for 30 years. And he got a, he had a really strong influence on my dad. My dad uh, was baptized, came into the church, and that had a really strong influence on me. And also my friends that went to the church across the street that would challenge my faith. <laughs> they would say all kinds of things about what I believe, and I would go, really, I believe that? And, and I'd have to go discover, you know, how it was. And that that's really interesting because that's where I learned kind of rhetoric and apologetics, like in 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 terms of how to think through an issue that you're being challenged on, right? It's really interesting to me. But regardless, um, you know, I graduated high school, and then you know where I went. Yeah. So um, before we go there, let's back up just a little bit. Um, you talked about faith. You talked about church. It's one of the things that I find very admirable in you is that uh, you are a very devout Catholic, and and I, you know, hats off for you having that much um, just respect for the Catholic religion and your faith. It's, I mean, it saved my life and we'll get through that. You know, I wouldn't be alive without it. Um, we'll get to that part of the story. Okay. So, um, out of high school, you went to where our audience is going to say no way. All right. So I'm going to prepare all of the people that are listening in Louisiana right now. I went straight to Xavier university, New Orleans, baby. (laughs) And so what did you study in Xavier? Well, that's what they asked me. Yeah. Because if you, for anybody who doesn't know, Xavier University is a black Catholic college. It's the only uh, black Catholic college in the Western Hemisphere. And so there's a group of priests called the Josephites. And they serve the poor African-American community in D.C., Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana is pretty much kind of their territory. And, of course, I, I, I didn't really have a great discernment of spirit back then. Right. All I knew is I loved hip hop and I loved black people and I just <laughs> wanted to be around them. Yeah. That, that, that was like, that was it. I was like 18 and I'm like, this looks cool. <laughs> that was it. And so, and so I moved down and, and started attending Xavier university and they'd ask me, what you doing to Xavier for? You, uh, you, you, you a pharmacy major? Cause it's a pharmacy school, right? Right. They would say that you a pharmacy major? No, I'm sociology. Sociology. What? What are you? What are you doing? I'm I'm with the Josephites. The Josephites, yeah, Domino. <laughs> you know, as I'm sitting there playing dominoes and spades, and all that. Yeah. So, um, how long were you at Xavier? I was at Xavier for one semester. Um, yeah, I. It was just. You know, you're a young guy. You, you as a Catholic, I think you you kind of think, well, am I called to this? This is something that I should do with my life. And you go, and, and that's what people don't understand about seminary. People think you go to seminary to become a priest. No, it, it's like you don't go on a date to get married. Right. Right? You go to seminary to figure it out, right? And I was there for one semester, went to a lot of great hip-hop shows. <laughs> Do you remember the Riverboat Hallelujah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not open anymore. Yeah. If you go back and listen to Masterpiece Makeup, say, uh You'll hear Mr. Cal. He says, "Riverboat, Hallelujah!" That's where we used to go on for the cat, for the for the cue parties. And for anybody that doesn't know, if you've ever seen Shaquille O'Neal dunk a basketball and he puts his 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 arms up like a horseshoe, and you'll see he has a horseshoe branded on his arm. Those are cues. That's 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 the Omega right there. And um, so yeah, I was uh, I was definitely not the. I mean, I, I was a good student, but um, was wasn't exactly in line with what I was there to do in terms of all the parties I was going to, but I wasn't drinking and that was the benefit to my friends. Right. Cause I would go and pick them up in the van and then we'd go to the river. Hallelujah. And they'd all get smashed on hurricanes and I drive them back to campus. Yeah. So, um, after that, what went on in your life? Well, so then I, yeah, so I went back, um, from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, 18 years old. I just went to seminary. I just got back. Uh, I moved back to Lansing, Michigan, because when I graduated from high school, my mom graduated from nursing school. And of course, it, you make more money downstate. So we're moving downstate. That's how we call it in Michigan, <laughs> upstate, up north and downstate. Um, and so we go back downstate and I go back and I, I move in with my sister 
Leah, and I'm working two jobs because that was what I did all through high school, right? I wanted a job. I didn't know I was an entrepreneur until I was like 32 years old. Right. You know that part. Yep. I used to call when I was 9, 10, 11, I used to call the want ads <laughs> in the newspaper for, for, for like accountant, sales manager, whatever. I would call and, you know, hello, this is Megan. And hey, Megan, this is Jimmy Han. How do I get that job? And she would, oh, you're so cute. I'm like, no, I want the job. Like, how do I get the job? And so I started working as soon as I could, um, which was just before 14, washing dishes. And then I became a line cook. And so in the summer, throughout high school, I would actually work two jobs. And so everybody was playing sports and doing all I cared about was I'm going to go make money. That's what I want, because that equaled freedom to me. Right. And and so 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 once I got back, that was my mentality. Right. I did this through high school. I guess now I have to do it now. And so I got a job at the. See, one place that I don't even know it's open anymore, and then there's another place that's still there called the Lansing Nut House, which is downtown Lansing, right across from what used to be Oldsmobile Stadium, um, where the Lansing Lugnuts play. And I would open the one kitchen and close the other. I was working 80 to 90 hours a week, just killing myself. Um, but it's the only thing I knew. But I'd meet up with my, with Comer, my Comer, my you know my best friend forever, and he he would he would just look at me. You know, we'd meet up between shifts and. He would just look at me and be like, "You're gonna kill yourself. What are you doing?" I'm like, "I just got, I just gotta make money. I just got, I gotta make money." And and that's what I did for, I don't even know, I guess about four or five months. Yeah, and then what happened? I got sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, you know, when you're making, when you're, when you're working eighty to ninety hours a week and you're bringing home less than four hundred and fifty dollars. It really, it, it wasn't making sense. That's not a long-term strategy? No, it didn't, didn't really seem like a really good strategy. <laughs> so, so I go to dad. And my dad, by the way, uh, after he sold the business, you know, he, his problems aside, I'm just going to say it right now. My dad is the greatest salesman who's ever walked the earth. Any job he got, I'm talking any, he was top of the board day two. And he was always in B2B sales too. Right. So, but I didn't get into B2B sales right away because I go up to him and I go, dad, I'm exhausted. I'm broke. What do I do? Why don't you get a job at our van? Art van. And so for anybody that doesn't know, which is everyone outside of the state of Michigan, one out of every two people in Michigan buys their furniture from Art Van Furniture. So it's a huge retailer up there. And I said, Art Van, they would hire me? So oh, they'll hire anybody. <laughs> so I went and interviewed and I remember... When I interviewed and I got the job, I was driving away in this like tweed, like just the this suit jacket that didn't fit and the tackiest tie and like all of this clothes that didn't fit. And I put on NOS, you you can hate me now. (laughs) You can hate me now with Puffy. Back then it was Puffy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I made it, baby. I made it. You know, and I'm I'm, I'm an 18 year old kid with a job selling furniture. So when you think about your job selling furniture, what was one of the things that you learned quickly that was unexpected? I wasn't good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, well, no, let me, let me put it, let me rephrase that. I was really great at it, and then I was terrible at it. And I didn't know why. That, that's, that, that was the glaring, obvious thing from day one. Okay. So um, did you ever figure out why you were terrible at it? Not for another 15, 16 years. Yeah, and what did you end up figuring out? When? No, what? What? Oh, that I was too emotionally involved in my sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's um, for any of our salespeople out there, it's something you'll hear me talk about now and then about being um, emotionally detached from the sale. And it doesn't mean you're not excited about it. It doesn't mean that you, you're, you don't want it to happen. What it means is you don't care about closing that sale. What you care about is helping the client. And if you can't help them, you walk away and go somewhere else. And it's a good lesson for most salespeople. I didn't learn it until about 10 years ago. So well, let me jump in on that yeah. real quick because this is, a, this is the story, right, that we're going to keep going through, which is the story of over-emotional involvement. And, and you only in the last 12 months you've helped me get over that where you convinced me you are still too emotionally involved. You, you get a lead and you put it in your funnel as a closed deal, James. And I'm and the, you, for anybody that doesn't know, Mark and I, we have a great relationship. We're like brothers and brothers fight, right? <laughs> and so you helped me. It was, remember, it was the day you, were t- you helped me take the, uh, the scooter out to the shop. 
and we're driving back. <laughs> we're driving back from the Home Depot, and you started going in on me about emotional attachment. And I was like, "You're wrong, brother. You're wrong." And I was justifying it all these ways, and you were just like, "Nope, I'm telling you, James." And then you remember you got out uh, to fill it up, and and something just dawned in my head, and I just stick my head out the door, and I go, "Mark, you're right. You're absolutely right." <laughs> you know. And so yeah, that that's get emotionally unattached. So how long did you sell furniture? I sold furniture, well, for 12 to 18 months, just like every other sales job I took. And then let, let's talk about a little bit. So you've had multiple sales jobs, right? I've lost more jobs than most people have had, yeah. except for I didn't lose them. I quit before they could fire me. You right. know those sales guys, right? Yeah. I was that guy. Yeah. And so at some point along this journey, did you stop and say, James, something is not right with this pattern? You would think you would, right? Right. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> you would think I was so clue. Okay, my goal in life was to make 80. That was my dream. Because 80 seemed like the number that I could just be comfortable, right? right? Like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be like crazy, out of control, wealthy. But I wouldn't be destitute either. It's just like a nice amount of money to me was 80. And, and also, while I was selling furniture and then, and then had to go get a subsequent job and all that, um, which was a horrible mortgage company that, thanks be to God, doesn't exist anymore because they're predatory lenders. And I was 19, or I'm sorry, 20, 21. And I'm going, hey, this doesn't seem right. And the sales director's going, no, this is how it is. You know, and, and thankfully, um, I learned enough and got out of there after a little while. But, um, but while that all was happening is I was bouncing in and out of Lansing Community College studying journalism. And, and I'm currently still a junior at Michigan State University. <laughs> cool. So um, can we fast forward a little bit? Um, Quicken Loans. How'd you, how'd, you, how'd you get into Quicken Loans? I dropped out of school. Okay. Yeah. So while all that stuff is going on, um, I, I, I finally, I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to get a job where I don't have to sell something for once. And I got a job as a teller at a credit union which was awesome for like two months. And then they were like, all right, we need to start selling checking accounts. And I'm like, son of a darn it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, but, and so, and, and at that time I was also living um, at the Emmaus house. Um, and I won't give the whole theological background of Emmaus, but you look it up at Emmaus house, which is a, uh, on East Lansing, um, Michigan state university campus. It's a house for young men discerning their vocation because I still wasn't sure right. what my calling was. And, and so now his father, Peter Van Royen, one of my best friends in the life, in my life, he, he went on to become a priest. Um, and that was a really, really awesome experience for me in there, in that house. Um, and, oh, that was also after I quit doing all the drugs and everything that we'll just skip kind of over. Um, but let's just say that Detroit, Michigan invented techno music. And uh, in the year 2000, Newsweek had ecstasy on its cover for the first time. And I might have been involved in, in some things that I was. And I totaled my car drinking and driving when I was 22. Um, I kept doing a bunch of things that convinced me I was invincible. Every time I went to a rave, the next day at Art Van Furniture, I sold over $5,000 worth of furniture. And I was convinced, okay, yeah, i got to do this more. Huh. You know? But why? But why? Because I'm, you know, I'm still kind of hung over and I'm just real laid back and I'm like, Hey, check out the couch, bro. Right. Should I sign that up? Um, but regardless, um, you know, moving on, on from there into Quicken loans. Yeah. I was at the Emmaus house and I, well, as you know, I have ADHD. Yeah. yeah. Let's stop right there. Cause I was, I was waiting for that to come out. So you have ADHD. Um, which and, you, and you know it's really bad because how long did it start before we started this podcast? Three days, thirty hours, twenty-seven minutes ago. Yeah, um, I'm yeah. exaggerating a little bit. So, but he's been over for a few minutes before we press record. Yeah. So you know, I've known you for a while, and I watch you. And so ADHD, a lot of people think that's a negative thing. It's not. It's just it's a difference, right? Well, that's something you learn. That's something you learn, right? And it can go one of two ways. A lot of the books that you read, they say that when you get the diagnosis, you feel relief. I did not. I felt I felt terrified because I felt like I was I was stupid. I was broken. Something was wrong. Something was yeah. wrong with me. But I grew up in a house where, of course, that would be pretty normal thought process. Right. And and but so the reason I bring it up around Michigan State is because you know I always joke, and it's true. 
It's true. I was at Michigan State University. Well, I, I went from Lansing Community College taking out $5,000 a semester loan. I get to journalism school 101, which was realistically, and I've been in journalism school, and I can say this, it's not journalism school. It's here's how we're going to get you to, to push our agenda. And I was the only person in class ever that pushed back. And I did not like that at all. It, it was a sheep mentality. And, and I, that really bothered me. Um, but what bothered me the most was that I was doing none of my other homework, only doing journalism homework for six weeks. And I was still two and a half weeks behind on my journalism homework. And, and I, I couldn't keep up. I just couldn't keep up. And I didn't know why. Of course, I found out later why, because I was diagnosed and got medicine and got help. Um, only until I moved to Texas, the great state of Texas, and met Dr. Rabjohn up in Mansfield. Up in Mansfield, that that, that man has changed my life. But um, also, the point I was making is um, financially, twenty thousand dollars a semester. I'm sitting there going, okay, twenty thousand dollars a semester. I'm going to take on another eighty thousand in debt to make thirty five when I graduate. I suck at sales, and I'm doing that right now. Right. This doesn't make any sense. So I dropped out, called my buddy Dakota Dennison. Shout out Dakota Dennison out there uh, in Phoenix, area, uh, Scottsdale now. Um, but he had been working. He, you know, I'm a buddy from, from college, and he got a job at Quicken. He said, sounds like you need a job. I said, I do. He said, why don't you come and work at Quicken? Well, they were paying $1,000 a head for a bonus, so he had something invested in, in that. And uh, I'm pretty sure they still have a pretty good bonus structure. But regardless... You know how bad my first interview was? How bad? It, 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 it was epic. Because, because um, there's a guy named Tig. We're doing, we're doing good. Um, there's a guy, Tim Burkmeyer. He, 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 he looks like, like, like the Dr. Evil style character. And if he stares you down, right? Right. And <clears throat> I went and sat down and, and his interview style was, who are you and why should I even care about talking to you right now? What? Wait, okay, look, tell me about this. Wait, doesn't that contradict what you just said over here? And I was like totally dry mouth, stuttering the whole time and just blew it, just blew it horrible. I, I get out, Dakota calls me, what did you do? Bergmeier just told me that's the worst interview he's ever had in his life. I'm like, I just, I just, he just, uh, he's like, this is what you need to do. And, he, and he's like, you have a pen and paper, write this down. This is exactly what you need to do. You need to go home. You need, and I drove from, from Metro Detroit back up to East Lansing. You need to write out a script. Okay. And you need to have a full bullet. You need to have a script. And the moment, what you're going to do at 9am is you're going to call Tim and then you're going to call him every five minutes until he answers the phone. And the moment he answers the phone, you're going to go straight into your into your in, into what you write. And at the at the end of it, you're going to slot close him on having you back Tuesday or Thursday. And so I went back to East Lansing with my pen and paper, and I stay I literally stayed up all night, just adrenaline just rushing, and I had this thing pat. Nine o'clock comes, I call him, he doesn't answer. Nine oh five doesn't answer, nine nine ten. It goes on until about nine thirty-five. He answers the phone. I launch into my script. I close him hard. And he goes, You're a lot better on the phone than in person, huh? I said, Yeah, I am. So when should I get there? This or this. I slot close him again. He said, Why don't you come back? So I went back and he said, You know what? We need you in this company. But not on my. I think you're a good. You're a better fit for the, this uh, for this region over here. Why don't you go work for this guy, Tim uh, Chris Childress? So you went to work quick and loan, and that was like your first, if we want to say, corporate yeah. type of job. Yeah. So what was the benefits of going to work for a large company? What What did you go? Oh my God, this is pretty cool. I'm grabbing it. This is it right here. This is, and I'll I'll take a picture and I'll throw it in the show notes. The number one thing I learned at Quick and Loans is corporate culture and, and how, how much your, the culture of your company affects the DNA of everything that you do. And you learn that from day two, is it? Because you go through a three-day orientation. One of those days is a full day. I'm talking 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. with the billionaire owner 
of the company, Dan Gilbert, who owns Quicken Loans and the Cleveland Cavaliers now, right? And he goes through these isms one at a time all day and breaks down, this is who we are. And, you know, there's just a few of them here. This one, I always, I always love this. You see it when you believe it, right? You'll see it when you believe it. It's not about the seeing. It's about the believing, and then it's going to happen. And these, you know, I still, dude, I haven't worked there for over a decade. These have been on my desk since I left. So is this, so was it a revelation to you about corporate culture could be that different depending on how the company was led? It absolutely was, because here's the deal. Uh, Art Van Furniture, the Lansing store that I was at, Dustin Vanderhoof uh, is, well, was, I, whatever. He was the store manager at the time. It was like the number one, not like, it was the number one store. I went to that mortgage company. When I went to that mortgage company, we had an amazing sales director. We weren't doing the, you know, the right, but regardless, he, he, his name was Andre and he was from Detroit and he commuted up from Southfield to Lansing, Michigan, and he knew how to fire you up and get you to do what you needed to do. And he did such a great job that he got promoted and they brought him in a new woman named Amy in the exact same team that was an international sales record every month setting team dropped to the bottom of the company and never recovered. And then people just attrition, everyone left. And so once I got to Quicken and, and day one or two or whatever it is, and Dan Gilbert is sitting there, the owner of the company, not, not the Cavs yet, but do you know, do you know why they're called Quicken Loans? No. So you'll appreciate this story. They, so it started off as mortgage in a box in 1996 and that all this dot-com stuff was going on. Right. And Quicken, the software company, just made a move and they said, hey, let's let's get into mortgages, right? Their stock was doing really well. Gilbert sold the company for some huge amount of money. Quicken, Quicken stock immediately tanked. And I think it was within the next 18 months, he came back and bought the company back for a quarter of what he sold it to them for. Yeah, genius. Just genius. And and then, um, what was the original question? <laughs> I almost forget. The original question was, um, you know, was the fact that corporate culture... Yeah, corporate culture. Yeah, and, and so... And so this this culture that they had infused within the company i saw it because i saw i saw the the difference between from one company to the next about what great leadership looks like and what terrible leadership looks like and how everything 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 i don't care what it is it's all leadership all of it yeah so agreed 100% um, you know, we work with some of the larger companies in the world, and I can tell you the differences. I, I can talk to employees, and I can tell you what company they work for because I know the culture is different between, you know, Exxon and Chevron and Halliburton and whatever. Um, all right, so Quicken Loans, um, how long were you there? So I was there for um, – I was really proud of myself because I made it like two years, right? Um, and it was the first time in my life that I was able to string together six good months. And I just told you about this the other day and you said, oh, well, anybody could do that back then because it was the housing boom was going on and everyone could get a mortgage. Right. And I ended up on, on the, the subprime team and I, I still have a very clear conscience of me. I mean, I was helping people change their lives. Right. But that was the only time in my existence as a salesperson. Now I'm, so I'm uh, 20, uh, six by now, I strung together six good months, got a promotion to senior banker, and then I went back to seminary. And how long were you there? I was there for one semester, and I made a mixtape while I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I might be the only person in the two thousand year history of the church that showed up to the seminary. <laughs> I would bet with you are turntables. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, so clearly wasn't wasn't the thing. And then I went back. And I just couldn't get it back. I didn't know what it was, and I couldn't get it back. And then one of my uh, prospects, he never bought from me. He was a leader at AT and T, and he and I and I I stalked him until he called until he called me back. But he didn't call me back to buy from me. He called me back to offer me a job. So you went to work for AT and T. Yeah, but you know what they hired me to do? What? 
they hired me as an enterprise account manager. Okay, a guy who sold at this point mortgages, cell phones, furniture, never done a B2B sale in his life. And just to jump forward, when I went, because they moved me to Toledo and my, my, my territory was like Ohio, right? Uh, Western Ohio. And, I, and the office was in Cleveland. So I, I got to drive all the way across o- Ohio during the, the winter on the turnpike and almost killing myself all the time. Um, yeah, but so for four months, I was enterprise. And, and by the time I got moved back, because at, at a certain point, they were like, oh, oh, bad, bad move. You've never done this before. Let's make you a spam, a small business account manager up in Detroit. So then I moved back to Detroit and the guys that were enterprise, well, he's still there. His name is Mike Rice and his accounts, well, one of his enterprise accounts was the Detroit Pistons. So you got me clueless out there managing, not, not even knowing what I'm doing, getting these, you know, the turnover meetings. Yeah. So I know the handoff means that's when they bring the new guy in, right? Yeah, yeah, and and here I am, no idea what I'm doing, no no training. You know, I just have a huge list, and 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 for some reason, I, I'm I'm getting these random commission checks, <laughs> and I'm like, I, okay, cool, I'm cashing this. Um, but so I ended up small business account manager in in Detroit, Michigan, and and Texans don't appreciate this. Anybody else outside of Texas can really appreciate this, especially anybody in Michigan. Shout out to John. Um, what happened when the housing crisis, when, when the world economy collapsed? I was a small business account manager. My territory was Detroit, and it was a normal part of my day. Hi, this is James calling from AT&T Mobility. Really appreciate the call, James. We're closing next week. Yeah, yeah. Detroit got hit horribly during the downturn. It, was, it, 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 got, it, I mean, it was depressing. That, yeah. was, that was my life. You know, it felt like a weekly thing, but, but I was falling also. I was still an, um, an amateur and, and I was falling into the prospects sales system and I was being used by people that were trying to get discounts from their current because right. of my emotional involvement. Right. Because of my emotional involvement, I think there's one deal that 57 lines that was going to make my life that one, that construction company. I still see him right off of the freeway when I go up there and they just played me like a fool so they could get a discount from Verizon. And I just I just went right along. But um, but regardless, that's when I. I, I, well, you know, I grew up pretty chubby, right? I lost 90 pounds. I helped my brother lose 126 pounds in eight months. And everybody started going, how the heck did you do that? And then I got this bright idea that I would become a health coach and a speaker during the worst economy since the great depression in the state with the worst economy. So it just made sense, right? I would move in with my mom in, in East Lansing, Michigan. I would patty burgers at the peanut barrel if you need a good Long Island iced tea, not that I drink anymore, but um, they're the best ones in the world are at the Peanut Barrel in East Lansing, Michigan. And I would patty burgers during the day, or even um, you know, go. To, I would go to a BNI networking event before work with a suit on. Go there, you know, put on my jeans, patty burgers, leave, clean up, put a suit back on, go to a different networking event, and I did that for a year and a half until I moved to Texas. Yeah, and so was that the beginning of the entrepreneur uh, journey for you? Yes. Yeah, that, and I didn't even know that what that it was, that it was called that. Yeah, so you moved to Texas. When was that? That was that was July twenty. Well, actually March twenty ten, and 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 then you know kind of back and forth a little bit. But but after basically, I came to Texas because if you don't know, which you know, Mark, in Lansing, Michigan, you get seventy days of sunshine a year, seventy seven zero, and how many lights are in this room? people i feel like i'm getting a tan there's there's like 25,000 watts of <laughs> 5500 kelvin daylight mimicking bulbs in this room yeah yeah they're 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 at 120 watt equivalent uh full spectrum lights there's at least uh, seven eight nine anyway um but regardless it was like okay i've had enough of this winter thing moved to texas and that experience of going from Quicken Loans to AT&T taught me that I would never work for another company that isn't on the best places to work list right. because those companies are on those lists for a reason it was, was what I determined. And so, you know, I was kind of feeling out the market in Austin trying to figure out if I could, you know, max out another credit card real quick. And finally, it was just like, okay, let's get a job. And I went to Austin Business Journal, top 50 places to work. And I whittled that down to a list of seven after doing all the research, Glassdoor, their own websites. And for some stupid reason, 
I, I was so attracted to this company called Drilling Info, which really didn't make any sense to me because I hated geology class. Right. Hated it. And they're sitting here talking about reservoirs and rock porosity, but it just seemed, seemed interesting to me. Uh, I interviewed. They hired me the next day. Yeah, and so was that your introduction to the oil and gas world? I knew nothing <laughs> of oil before then. Nothing. You know, I joke about it all the time. I grew up in Michigan. We make cars. The only thing I knew about oil is that you have to change it every 3,000 miles. That's literally all I knew. Yeah, so what was it like day one at Drilling Info? Day one at Drilling Info was the sales academy, okay? It was the last time that all, the entire sales team could fit into the boardroom at the office. It was hot as heck, and all of a sudden you got these people talking Chinese. I had no idea what they were saying the whole day. The whole day, I had no clue what they were talking about. And that was my introduction to oil and gas, that right there, talking about decline curves, talking about porosity, you know, all of these things about well stimulation techniques. And I, I just, I had no clue what I was listening to. Yeah. So introduction to oil and gas world, it's all new. It's so technical. You're not getting any of it, but you end up meeting Alan Gilmore, right? Well, yeah, so Gilmer is the, I should say Alan. <laughs> so um, Alan Gilmer is the co-founder and, and CEO. And the thing is that it's not, a, it's not about meeting Gilmer. It, it's your family when you work there. I know him well. I mean, so he's, he's just a great guy. He, he, and so back, back you, you have the back then, and I don't know what the office is like now, but back then we had they called the bullpen, which is where you know, I was on the phone sale of the small, you know, small accounts team. And he would always come back and he would just hang out. Right. He would just talk to us. And, he, and, and, of course, he would always be staring down the board, too. <laughs> right. So you start out at basically inside sales, a small account to drilling info. Um, you're drinking from the fire hose, having to learn all this stuff that seems talking, like. <laughs> talking to these crazy Texans. I remember I put up, I put up this, uh, this status like within the first week of being there um, on Facebook where I said, you know that, that uh, – stereotype about how Texans really like to drink. It's not a stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, it was something else. All of a sudden you got, you got, you know, Billy on the line and he's telling you his war stories and you're like, wow, what did I get myself into? I mean, I like this part, but Oh, here comes Gasland. <laughs> so yeah, it, for me, the big thing was trucks. Everybody in the state only gas industry drives a big truck and I just don't get it. I still, I, I, mean, I don't, I don't drive a truck. Uh, but yeah, I, I know that that moment. It's like well, it's true. The stereotype is true. So um, you at Drilling Info inside sales for twelve months. For twelve months, and then what happened? They fired me. They fired you. They were the first company in my illustrious twelve-year sales career to actually fire me before you quit. Before I quit. Yeah. Because at the time, you know, I was I was married with in Jamie and uh, my my son's mom. Her name is Jamie. And my son is Fulton Ignatius Hahn, after Bishop, Archbishop, Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, shout out. Um, but regardless, um, yeah, I'm sitting there with Colin, and he's firing me. And I said, hey, we're going to move up to Dallas. I see there's a training position up there. Can I have it? He says, yes. Well, you might notice that Colin's title at the time was Senior Vice President of Sales and had nothing to do with you know, the retention team or the, the client development team, that, that is Cindy Stewart. Well, Cindy had hired someone and written, had written documents with them that morning. And so then I had a meeting with HR where straight talking Cindy, sat, as soon as I sat down and there's a pause, she goes, James, I don't got a job for you. I started crying. And uh, she says, what we're going to do, go up to Dallas. You're going to work on the technical, you know, because we got this technical documentation. Work on that. Find a job. And you'll be good. You know, this will be a 90-day thing. Four weeks in, it's, it's, it's clearly going longer than that. Right. It's July, and she calls me, and she's, okay, yeah, this is going to be, a, this is gonna be a, a position, but the board has to meet to approve the budget. When does the board meet, Cindy? December. Okay, so six months, I won't know if I have a job? Okay, no problem. And, and I bought in. I was like, okay, I'm a technical writer. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm a technical writer. And... But I'm still all this time while I'm working at Drilling Info, I'm still reading all of the blogs. I'm still downloading all of the ebooks. I'm doing everything, going to the National Speakers Association meetings, networking, doing all of these things because I was convinced I wasn't going to work for other people for the rest of my life. I didn't know what that would look like right. or how that would happen. But in, in my technical writing, I did it the, with the mindset of an entrepreneur. I said, okay, 
if I'm a technical writer, I'm going to be the best damn technical writer there is. So I've joined the Society of Technical Communication. I found all of the expert blogs. I, I found all of the webinars, all of the eBooks, and I did the exact same thing that I was doing with this, what I didn't know was marketing. As far as I was concerned, I was learning how to grow a business. And then, so I did that for a year, got super bored, sent, uh, because could you imagine me writing technical no. documentation? <laughs> not, not at all. Can you nope. think about that for a second? Yeah. Yeah, my, my, not my, a good my, my direct manager, Alexa, I felt so bad for her. She'd be like, James, could you just maybe tone it down? <laughs> I'm writing sales copy, writing whatever. Um, so I, I emailed Cindy. I said, I'm getting bored. She says, okay, uh, I'll call you tomorrow uh, about that job because there was another training job in Dallas, the one I was supposed to, well, not supposed to, but you know that I didn't get the year before. And she called me the next day and she said, I didn't call you that for that for a reason, and I immediately knew that she was going to fire me, because of course I just got off of a really long time of you know temporary employment, and and so I, I I freaked out in that moment, and then she said, "Well, did you hear that the head of marketing stepped down?" And I said, "No." Well, so this other guy's taking his place, and I was in the executive meeting on Monday morning, and the website came up, and our Facebook page came up. And then you came up. Me? How did I come up in that conversation? James, everyone knows that you're really good at this stuff. How? <laughs> How? And eventually she just kind of had to grab me by the collar and she said, James, you're a marketer. This is what you're good at. This is what you need to do. And I just said, okay, <laughs> because I didn't know. And, and, and then she said, you have a pen and paper, do this. So I have a couple of moments where people have told me exactly what to do. And she said, gave me the task list so that she could champion me into this position that didn't exist. And so, uh, this is your first exposure, at least for admitting it to yourself that you were a marketer. I, I, I had to process that thought. It took me, you know, me, I have to process these things that have this philosophical mindset, right? And it, it, it just kept turning over. You know, I'm a marketer, me, a marketer, I'm a mar- I'm, I'm a me. And then I went to my, and then I went to my email and opened it up and nothing, you know, Jay Bear, all social media examiner, all this stuff. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, I'm a market. I'm a, mar- I'm a marketer. I'm, you know, I had something finally, I had something, I was some, you know, I had something that I could call myself that, that wasn't a failure. Right. <laughs> right? So let's, uh, let's talk about some results. What did you do for Drilling Info? Well, you know, I used to tell this story about how, you know, within 18 months, uh, you know, within 18 months, we were producing 150 leads with individual blog posts and I quintupled and quadrupled and blah, 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 other social media. That's not the story, though. That's not the story. The story is that when I started doing what I was doing at Drilling Info, they were known as Drilling Info, the data vendor. You know that. Right. Everybody, because they've been around since 99. And everybody just, it's a commoditized data. Yeah, you get permits and everything. But they needed to make that transition, that, that perception in the marketplace needed to shift to Drilling Info, the analytics and intelligence company. And, and I've asked Alan Gilmer since then, would you say that the work I did brought about that transformation? And his direct response was, I would certainly say you started that transformation. Yeah, and so, you know, how cool is that to be the person that started that transformation in a company that size and in this industry, which is probably the hardest industry the to, hardest. Ch- to change brand awareness. I mean, to it's, change a perception about yeah. anything in this industry is nearly impossible. And the fact that we did it in the time fashion that we did, but that's the beautiful thing about digital because it leverage, it gives you that leverage to, I don't know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to start soapboxing, but you know, we did a lot of really great stuff. They sent me out to social media marketing world 2013 by social media examiner, um, I'll throw that in the show notes because you should sign up for 2016. Um, at that show was the first time I was ever around my, a group of my peers. And I was a little shocked by my peers. Yeah. Did it feel good to be with people that thought and acted and spoke like you? Well, here's the thing. I was really excited about going there because I wanted, well, first of all, and, and you know me, I don't, there are no celebrities in my, because you know, I've been hanging out with the National Speakers Association for so long. When you bump into a, a, a legend like Les Brown in a, in a hallway and have a quick call, you know, conversation with him, the two months after you start your business, the world is a little different, right? And so I, I, 
I don't when I go to meetings like that, I, I'm not really fanboying, but I, I ran up on Mike Stelzner. I did. I ran up on him and I just wow, you just changed my life. Ah! And he ended up having someone write a case study about my work at Drilling Info and Social Media Examiner, which went out to 247,000 subscribers at the time. So I guess it all worked out. Yeah, how cool is that? So um, let's, uh, let's fast forward a little bit. So you're, you're at Drilling Info. You make some major moves. Um, we don't really want to go down the route of while you're, yeah. So um, let's jump to... How did the change happen? Yeah, how did the change happen? That's exactly why I brought up social media marketing world. Because when I was there, and I'm not Kobe Bryant, that guy's a freaking legend. I don't care what anybody says. I know you can hate him or love him. You have to respect him. He's the, he's the one who's come closest to, to Michael. His, his whole game looks exactly like Michael's. Um, Michael Jordan, by the way, for any international listeners who aren't into basketball. But he was interviewed by Bill Simmons on the BS Report on ESPN Radio before unfortunately bill simmons left espn and i'm still waiting for him to come back but he was interviewing kobe bryant and he asked kobe bryant when did you realize that you were such a hard worker and kobe said my first year in the league how because everybody told me i was a hard worker and i'm going work this is work okay fine and and i felt like that when i went to that conference because i had an expectation in my mind that I was going to be a student at the feet of the masters. But I found myself in the sessions with people sitting next to me and their brains exploding as they're writing these ravenous notes, just, just totally shocked and, and, and fired up about what they're learning. And, and I am sitting there going, well, you've never heard that. Don't you follow his blog? Don't you listen to his podcast? And, and to go back to Kobe, he said he didn't realize that until he got to the NBA, that not everybody in the NBA lives, sleeps, eat, breathes basketball. That's you know, not everybody's like that, right? Right. And and so again, I'm not Kobe, but that 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 is the mentality that I had around it was just this obsession of mine. And so I ended up in Joe Polizzi's, and I have his permission to tell because it it's such an embarrassing story for me to actually say that I thought this about Joe. But I was in his in and so Joe Polizzi Content Marketing Institute. Um of course, we, we both, we, you and I, Mark, know the term content marketing. Well, Joe Polizzi coined that term. And I'm sitting there listening to him speak about buyer personas. And I'm having the same feeling again where it's like, I know this stuff. I, I actually, and then finally, I had a thought, which was, I could get up and give this speech right now. I wouldn't even need to, I could get on the stage right now and give this speech. And the next thought was, this guy doesn't know anything I don't know, which is absurd. Um, you know, within the context of that speech, he wasn't saying anything new. And then the next thought was, what will happen if I go home? This is the big idea. What will happen if I go home and help as many people as humanly possible without asking for or expecting anything in return? I have to qualify that by saying that. I did not believe I could own a business at the time. I did not believe it. In my mind, the story that I told myself was three to five years. All right, now I'm social media manager. I got this title, three to five years. Then I'll be able to, then I'll be able to do my thing. Then I'll be able to go out on my own. Then, then, then. And so I got back and you know me, I'm the king of unsolicited advice and you actually uh, are a beneficiary of my unsolicited advice. Um, but I started just running up on people and it became this, what I like to affectionately call the your baby is ugly call. And it's about a 90 minute session where I just take people through and say, okay, here's a great website and here's why you suck in very nice language. And so was that the beginning of TriBrocket? Eventually. Yeah. So that was the conceptual beginning of TriBrocket. Well, no, it wasn't conceptual at all. Again, I didn't believe I could own a business. It would, it would be like a chimpanzee being like, I wonder if I could get to the moon today. It wasn't in my belief system. All I wanted to do was help people. Right. That's all I wanted to do. And so I just started. And then, you know, clueless, naive James uh, is doing this for about eight months. And then I end up on the phone with the, you, you, you put two and two together. If, if you, if you look at this scenario, the CEO of a small upstream oil and gas company in Fort Worth and his developer to him, he's on a sales call. I have no freaking clue. I'm on a sales call. No clue. Right. I'm just helping him. And I'm going through the thing. And like I said, it was, it became about 90 minutes. And 50 minutes in, he stops me and he goes, all right, James, if we wanted to hire you to do this for us, how much would that cost and what would it look like? And I stammered and we negotiated 
and his retainer replaced my salary. Yeah, how awesome is that? And Marcus Sheridan talked me off the ledge, or over (laughs) the ledge, I should say. I'll throw him in the show notes as well. Marcus Sheridan, shout out the sales lion. When I was on that precipice of making that final decision to go it alone, he, you know, I told you the whole story, we don't have time for it now, but, you know, he called me in my hour of need and he said, James, you're a stallion, brother. You need to get out and run. And so I was like, okay, all right, Marcus, I can do this. And I, I, that was, that was Tribe Rocket. And I'm, and I started January 1, 2014. And, and then I moved immediately to Idaho <laughs> Because that's what you do when you start a business in oil and gas, right? You move to North Idaho, and then I moved to South Carolina. Well, we won't talk about that, but that's when you and I met when I was in South Carolina. And, I, and, and that's the miracle part of this story is that I'm still in business, and I wasn't even in Houston or even in Texas you know, for the first year of my business. And then Marty Dietrich. Marty Dietrich, right. In March of 2014, last year, 2014, he sent me an email. I saw it. I was so behind on my emails for all kinds of reasons. And I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm processing through the emails and I'm a hyperintuitive cat. So I'm just like, and so Marty says, hey, you should have this guy on your show, which is the old show, um, you know, which we won't mention right now because I need to get the podcast feed going again. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he said, you need to have this guy on the show. And so I looked at your website and my first thing was, ah, yes, eh, I don't know. Just, and I look back at the email, looked at a couple more pages in your site, and my intuition said, "Yeah, yeah, you need to meet this guy." And so I emailed you back, and we and we had and we talked, and I said, "Yeah, let's come on the show." And thus began our podcasting journey, right? <laughs> yeah, and 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 luckily for me, you reached out um, because my website sucked back then. My, my <laughs> it was really bad. Yeah, my business was totally built around. My cold calling team set appointments for me, me going out and jumping on planes, spending money trying to close deals. And folks, all that stuff's gone. And my website's better. Um, and thanks to James, you know, my my leads now 100% either come from inbound, from uh, our search engine um, rankings, or from uh, referrals. And it's, it's just... And let a- me just point this out right now. There are two people in my life who have done exactly what I told them to do. One is my brother, Joey, and he lost 126 pounds in eight months. And one is you who closed the largest deal in company, da, 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 that whole story. So if everyone just listened to me, they'd be in great shape <laughs> and, and they'd have a lot of money. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, so we've taken this, the, the journey literally from uh, when you were a small child through a lot of trials and tribulations to where it is now. So for Thanksgiving, James, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful that the winter time is over. <laughs> what a great answer. Um, and if you don't know what he's talking about, I'm sure James will throw a link up to help explain it. But it's, Mr. Uh, Jim Rohn, the seasons of life, you have to understand that that there are seasons, and this goes back to the original thread of this whole story, which is emotional detachment. Because I used to think, I used to think winter harvest, winter harvest, it was, it was feast or famine. And the thing is that you have to survive the winter, you have to plant in the spring, you have to see your crop through the summer, and eventually your harvest will come, eventually. And that's the miracle part of this story is that it's come now, after two years of the closest people in my life telling me that I'm crazy, that I have delusions of grandeur, that I, that I can't do this. And this is the entrepreneur's story, right? You... You're told when you're a kid that you can do anything, and then you grow up believing you to, you can do anything, and people call you crazy. And so for me, it's it's amazing because we've got these sponsors. We've got the first sponsor starting next week, all the other sponsors we're talking to right now, and this dream all materializing right now. And the number one thing, and this goes back to the point that you brought up at the beginning, is this emotional involvement problem. And, and, and how you've, and we've talked about how you've helped me get around that or not get around it, but work through that. And you've helped me a lot in that way. But the number one person I always have to give the credit to, well, besides Jesus is Mr. Jim Rohn, because, you know, as you know, I've been listening to him for six and a half years, every single day, even when I was patting burgers in the peanut barrel after quitting my 70 K, which not a lot, Detroit, Michigan, not bad. Um, you know, I was listening to Mr. Rohn patting burgers, thinking about the future, 
And here we are in the future, <laughs> actually Marty McFly and everything. And I could not be more thankful for how this has turned out because we didn't expect it to do this. Did we? No. In fact, when the first sponsor reached out to me, I almost said, no, we'll do it for free. <laughs> um, but our, you know, I, and, and I had to get in on that. No, yeah, and because our intent was to be generally useful, to be helpful. We did not start this looking to make money or to have sponsors or anything. Now, the nice thing about the sponsorship, um, it, other than the fact that we were able to help our audience more, is we're actually going to put that money back into the podcast to help grow our audience so we can reach even more people. So, you know, just targeted Facebook ads, targeted Twitter ads, transcripts, SEO. It's going to be 2016 is, you know, that New Year's Eve is my, is one of my favorite holidays besides the 4th of July because you get to blow, blow things up. I mean, yeah. And your son doesn't like fireworks. I'm very sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But 2016 is going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year for you, for me, for our audience, for everybody. Yeah. So, you know, we've run over a bit on time. We need to wrap this thing up. Is, um, is there anything else you want to get out? I'm writing a book in 2016. You're writing a book in 2016. Yeah. Awesome. I'm putting myself, I'm holding myself accountable. I'm saying it right now so that I actually have to do it. Okay. So let's, uh, you got a working title yet? Yeah. My working title is You Could Have Never Imagined. You Could Have Never Imagined. Yeah. Because every successful person that you hear, it's not about the law of attraction. It's not about sitting, you know, sleeping under pyramids and in, in, in field force fields and things. It's about, it's about the work. Absolutely. It's about the work. And you hear every, you know, you want Tony Hawk, Mr. Jim Rohn, Nick Lidstrom, greatest, one of the greatest, you know, I don't want to soapbox on the Red Wings, but one of the greatest defensemen of all time just inducted into the, into the NHL Hall of Fame in his speech. I just watched it last week. He said, I could have never imagined when I was eight years old playing in my backyard in Sweden in the winter that I would be standing here right now. And that's what I want. I want to. I want to tell those stories so that people can realize that once they start doing the work, they could never imagine where it's going to go. Because I didn't know this was going to happen for us. I'm so thankful that it is. But it's about action. Yeah. So um, let's wrap this thing up, um, folks. I uh, hope this was. I know it's a little bit different than what we normally do. Well, hope you're 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 struggling right now because I'm the one that closes the show, <laughs> and so I'll take over so that we can do our standard outro. So, Mark, you've listened to me talk for at least an hour, and you've been here for at least four. At least. <laughs> Are you ready to get out of here, brother? Oh yes. Yeah. So, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut.